Well, we're here still in the, the sixth trumpet in, within the set of seven trumpets. Last week we saw the first half of that, uh, the seventh, that sixth trumpet where we heard basically the call, the commission uh, that was given to John and through John uh, to his people to, uh, to prophesy, to uh, proclaim the gospel in the midst of uh, the judgments of God that are in the earth. Uh, this is the second part of that trumpet and here uh, we see these two witnesses and these two witnesses, the story of these two witnesses is actually the story of the church. I'm not going to try and work out or try and identify whether these are two specific people in history. People have tried again and again to identify them. Some people have put their hand up and said, oh, I'm, I'm at least one of these witnesses. Uh, but I believe this, this passage is not telling us to look for two specific people in history, but to see what it tells us about us as God's people. God's people in this age between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. These two witnesses shows us what it looks like to testify to Jesus in obedience to the Great Commission, which we saw last week. Remember, John took the scroll from the hand of the angel, which represented God himself, Jesus, the risen Jesus. He was commanded to eat of it and he was warned that it would taste sweet in his mouth, but it would be bitter in his stomach. Because as the gospel, the sweet gospel is proclaimed in the world, there will always be two responses. Some will accept and believe, others will reject it. Testifying to Jesus will always be a bittersweet experience. And we need to avoid two temptations that we can fall into as a church and as Christians. The first is to be discouraged and feel defeated, only focusing on the bitterness of the world's rejection of the Christian faith. More and more in Australia and the West, there are buildings like this one that we're in, which house small churches like ours. We know that the influence of the church in society seems to be going backwards. The voices of secularism are growing louder and louder. And so many people are now describing at least the Western world as post-Christian. Now, if they're the only things that we focus on, we'll be tempted to feel like God's given up on his church. But the second temptation is for triumphalism, where we talk ourselves into believing that nationwide revival is just around the corner and before long the tide will turn and masses of people will be flooding into the churches. There's a section of the church that is obsessed with that idea. Some of them even incorporate the word revival into their name, hoping that that revival will start with them. Often those, teach, those churches teach a, what's been called easy believism in which they, they manage to get lots of people to respond 
to the message. They use clever techniques to do that. But unfortunately, a lot of people who respond don't hang around for long because they haven't actually heard or responded to the full gospel. So there's lots of statistics that show that there are a high number of decisions for Jesus, but the reality is uh, the church in the West, at least, is still declining and shrinking. But what, so what's the solution to those two temptations of either being discouraged and defeated or being unrealistically triumphant? Well, it's not to come up with some kind of middle road strategy where we aim to build and plant just average sized churches. The problem with that approach is that the problem with all three of those approaches is that our focus is on the church and building the church. When Jesus said explicitly, building the church is his job, not ours. Our call is to be the church, not to create or build churches. The building that we are to focus on is building one another up in love. Each of us is a living stone in this new temple that Jesus is building. And the planting that we're to focus on is the planting of the seed of God's word in people's hearts with the confidence that God is the one who will bring about the growth. Now those who are specifically called to ministry roles in the church are described in the New Testament as, as builders, but they're to understand clearly that the foundation of the church has already been laid in Jesus Christ. And any building that we do must rest on that solid rock foundation, not on the base of shifting sand. So in short, we we need to open our eyes to see what Jesus is doing to build and refine and purify his church. And one way we can do that is to get a global perspective. Christianity is still listed as the largest and fastest growing religion in the world. Churches in other parts of the world, in Asia, in Africa, in South America, are still growing explosively. Jesus is still build, building his church because his view of the church is global. He doesn't just look at the church and just what we're experiencing here in the West. So we need to have those eyes to see what he's doing across the world. But we also need to understand that his work of building the church involves both, both blessings and judgments. We saw in the seven churches that Jesus both commends the churches for their faithfulness and perseverance, but he's also grieved by their compromise and their idolatry and he rebukes them. And we need to remember then this bittersweet nature, not only of being the church, but of the mission that he's called us to do. We should expect to see both fruitfulness and persecution, joys and sorrows, pleasure and grief. Because if we're truly the body of Christ, 
we should expect our ministry to come to resemble Christ in his sufferings and in his victory. And this is the picture that's painted for us in these two witnesses. But before we look closer at the story, I want to talk about the numbers that come up in this passage. There a number there, uh, 42 months in verse 2. In verse 3, 1,260 days. Then in verses 3 and 4, the two witnesses, who were also two olive trees and two lampstands. And then in verses 9 and 11, three and a half days. Well, firstly, the number two. Two is biblically significant in relation to witnesses. Jesus affirmed the law but by saying that there must be at least two witnesses in any action of church discipline. That's because the law said there can be no charge laid against someone purely on the testimony of one witness. And by the time of Jesus, that idea, that principle of multiple witnesses was applied even wider so that a report of an event of any kind wouldn't be believed unless there were more than one or two witnesses. That's why Jesus sent out his disciples two by two into the villages that he was about to um, visit. That's why the Gospel writers make a point of recording the multiple witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. So the church, being represented by these two witnesses, tell us that we have a testimony that is reliable. It's not just one man's made-up story. It's the testimony of eyewitnesses. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Two witnesses also tell us that we're doing this together. Two speaks of companionship and partnership. We're not lone rangers. The Great Commission applies to each of us as individuals as we are members of the church. It's a corporate commission Part of communicating the gospel to people is that coming to Jesus means coming into his church. So it's important that the gospel is shared not just by individuals, but as we work together. Each of us doing the part that God has given us as the Holy Spirit has given us various gifts. As I said last week, it doesn't mean we all have to go out and stand on the corner and be an evangelist. We all, in our various ways, contribute to the body of Christ proclaiming the gospel. Now, the other numbers in this passage are actually the same number. They have the same symbolism. 42 months and 1,260 days, based on a Hebrew calendar of 360 days adds up to three and a half years. 
This time frame first appears in the book of Daniel when he's speaking or being told of a future king. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. A time, times, as in two times and half, three and a half. And it comes up again a couple of chapters later. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week, three and a half days, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolation. This prophecy was partly fulfilled in 167 BC. The Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Judea. He set up a statue of Zeus in the Jewish temple and he replaced the temple sacrifices with sacrifices of pigs, the epitome of unclean animals. Any Jew who refused to comply with this new worship was to be killed. And this went on for three and a half years. In that time, over 80,000 Jews were slaughtered or enslaved. Then in 164, Antiochus died. The Jews rose up and rebelled and the temple was rededicated and the sacrifices resumed. And that celebration of the temple's rededication has been celebrated ever since in the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. So three and a half years, or simply the number three and a half, 42 months, 1,260 days, was symbolic to the Jews of a great terrible time of tribulation. Now Jesus referred to Daniel's prophecy as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple looking across and predicting that the temple would be destroyed within their generation. He said that the siege of Jerusalem, which also lasted around three and a half years, culminating in the destruction of the temple, he said that is the fulfilment of Daniel's prophecy. So in 66 AD, the Roman governor raided temple funds and he used them to set up a statue of the emperor, King Nero, in the temple. And this so outraged the Jews and the the zealots that they rose up in a violent revolution against Rome. They also were divided amongst themselves and they fought amongst one another and the temple was actually taken over by a group of zealots. They slaughtered the priests and they desecrated the temple with the blood of the priests and they made the temple their military base. This was what Jesus predicted, the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of. Not only the statue of Nero, who was worshipped as a god in the temple, 
but the holy place, the temple, was desecrated by the Jews themselves. So whenever we see this number, three and a half or 42 months or 1,260 days in Revelation, we should think tribulation, suffering, abomination. For the Christians of the first century, it spoke of violent persecution both from the Romans and from the Jews who'd rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So with all that in mind, let's look at the story. First, there's some more measuring. Now here's a test for those who come on Friday nights. What's the thing that's measured the most in the Bible? Anyone remember? It's the tabernacle or the temple or it's furnishings. Wherever you see measurements happening through the Bible, it's often it's, it's Jerusalem, the holy city, or it's the temple or the tabernacle or the ark of the covenant. Even Noah's ark was a, was a little holy box where his people were kept safe. You see here, it's not just the temple, but it's also those who worship there. The worshippers are measured. This is the same thing that was going on in the previous vision when John heard the numbering of the 144,000. The people are measured and counted. This is the gathering in of God's people into his house, his safe house. And measuring the temple communicates both the fact that it's big enough to accommodate everyone that God is bringing in but also it communicates that there are clear boundaries. It's obvious who's inside and who's outside. So this is the church being gathered and being defined, the new temple that Jesus is building. It's interesting to note as a little aside that the only time that we're told about the numerical size of the church is right at the beginning of the book of Acts. There were 120 disciples led by 12 apostles. There's that number 12, which is significant. Then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out. Peter proclaimed the Gospel for the first time and we're told about 3,000 were added to their number. But after that, we only see phrases like the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Or more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So this countable group of 120 very quickly turned into an uncountable multitude. Does that sound familiar? So the church is established, it's gathered into the holy place of the temple within the safety of its walls and its closed doors. But the outer court isn't mentioned, isn't measured, sorry. It's given over to the nations. The question is, who gives it over to the nations? Well, it's God. Remember when Jesus came into the temple just before Passover and he drove out all of the money changers and the people selling animals. These people were set up in the outer courts of the temple so that the travellers who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover could buy animals for sacrifice 
and could exchange their foreign currency with the shekel so they could pay the temple tax. Jesus drove them out and when he did, he called out, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. He was angered because the place, especially for the Gentiles to come, was they were being pushed out by the money changers and the traders. This outer court was designed especially so that people from any nation could come and pray to the God of Israel and know that even though they weren't Israelites, the God of Israel wanted to bless them through Israel. So the nations come in and they trample the outer courts and the holy city because God has allowed them to come in. So their trampling will bring a time of suffering for the church because it's trampling, but at the same time, it'll bring opportunity. Unlike the physical temple which was destroyed in 70 AD, the temple of the church will stand firm and it will be a beacon of light and hope to the nations. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So from this place of safety in the temple, surrounded by the trampling nations, God sends out his witnesses to prophesy to the nations. So let's see how these two witnesses are described and remember it's a description of us. Firstly, we're told that they wore sackcloth. Sackcloth is a sign of mourning and of repentance. It was often worn by the prophets as they called God's people back to the Lord. This sackcloth speaks of the nature of our message. Through the Gospel, We are to call people to repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. But it also speaks of our demeanour. We are dressed in sackcloth. We are sinners, saved by grace, only brought to repentance because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So we can only call people to repentance insofar as we ourselves are a repentant people. Church must embody the message that we proclaim. What the world needs isn't a powerful and professional and shiny, spectacular church that lives up to the world's standards of excellence. No, what the world needs is a humble, repentant church who's willing to lay down her life to serve, willing to admit her own faults and sins and makes much not of herself, but of the Saviour that she proclaims. Flashy programs, polished performances, communicate a sense of competence and self-sufficiency. Look what we're able to produce. And it turns the gospel of grace into a prosperity gospel. People will come to hear because they'll have their itching ears scratched And it makes them feel good about themselves as they already are and 
causes them to think that Jesus exists to make them happy and to reach their potential. But the gospel of grace, of Christ crucified, that's not going to be attractive to everyone because it tells us to get rid of our self-sufficiency, to humble ourselves, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, to lose our life in this world in order to gain eternal life. A pastor friend of mine told me about a man who had decided to leave the church because he was sick of hearing about sin every Sunday. But if we don't hear about sin, how can we hear about grace and mercy and forgiveness? So we should come to church every Sunday preparing ourselves to repent as we hear God's strong word that calls us to flee from sin and to run and take hold of the cross where forgiveness is found. Secondly, we're told that they are, uh, where are we? the two olive trees and lampstands before the Lord. Now this imagery comes from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4 says, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, who was Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel was the one who led the first group of exiles back from Babylon to Jerusalem in 538 BC. He was a descendant of King David. And he was an ancestor of Jesus. And Zechariah is told that Zerubbabel will lay the foundation stone for the temple that they were returning to rebuild. He goes on from verse 11, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So Zerubbabel is one of these olive trees the rightful heir to the throne of David. The other olive tree, who appears later in the book, was Joshua, the high priest. Joshua and Zerubbabel worked together to lead the rebuilding of the temple. 
So the lampstand in Zechariah's vision symbolises this temple that will be rebuilt through these two anointed men whom the Lord set apart for this very purpose. Now in John's vision, the two pipes have become two lampstands, but the symbolism is the same. The ministry of the two witnesses, the church, is a kingly and priestly people. Peter calls us a royal priesthood who declare the excellencies of Christ. We reign with Christ and in Christ, with Christ, we perform a priestly ministry. It's through our preaching that the Holy Spirit draws people to Christ. So a kingly and priestly people, but we're also a prophetic people. We're told that they uh, call down fire. Verses 5 to 6, they call down fire, they stop the rain and they strike the earth with plagues. This brings our attention to two other Old Testament figures, Elijah and Moses. Uh, There's an account of Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Elijah prayed that rain would cease during the time of the evil King Ahab, which it did for three and a half years. Moses was the channel through whom the Lord sent the plagues upon Egypt. Remember these two men appeared to Peter, James and John on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured. Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets, both of whom Jesus came to fulfil by going to the cross. So Moses and Elijah foreshadowed Jesus, but they also foreshadow the ministry that we have in him. We proclaim Christ as the one who fulfilled the law in his life and death. We proclaim Christ who is called the yes to all of God's promises through the prophets. So if we're to faithfully proclaim the gospel, we need to know not just our New Testaments but our whole Bible. We can't understand the new without the old. Virtually every part of the New Testament quotes or alludes to the old. You know, it's been estimated that the Bible contains about 340,000 cross-references between New and Old Testaments. So we're a kingly, priestly, prophetic community. We're told in verses 7 to 10 that this proclamation leads to persecution and to death. The world and the devil hate the message of Christ crucified. It's a stumbling plot to Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. And so it will be received with hostility and with ridicule. Even though we know it to be a sweet message of grace, people with hard and unrepentant hearts will hear it as a bitter word of judgment. At the heart of the Gospel is the announcement that Christ is the only one, the only one who bore our sins in his substitutionary death and therefore he is the only way to be reconciled to God. 
And so the gospel is offensive. It tells people that they're sinners who need to be saved. The proud human heart doesn't want to hear that. And so the message of grace and mercy in Jesus will be heard as a message of judgmentalism and hatred. So when it appears that the church has been defeated and the witnesses' dead bodies are lying in the street, the world celebrates. That picture is closer to our current context than you may realise. Now, people in Australia don't openly rejoice if Christians are persecuted. In fact, Australians are rejoicing at the moment at the news that a Christian missionary who was kidnapped by Al-Qaeda has been released after seven years and returned to Australia. But nevertheless, there is a growing narrative in our culture that sees Christianity no longer as something quaint or to be tolerated, but as something that's harmful to our autonomy from God. So there is at times a sense of gleefulness when changes are made in society that are discarding Christian values and ideas that that Christianity has brought to our culture. So we're brought back again to that image back in the seals of the slain under the altar, suffering because of their testimony to Jesus. But it's not the end of the story. We're told that they are resurrected and glorified and vindicated in verses 11 to 13. The world doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. He calls to his people, come up here. What glorious words. That, they're the words that are described in 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Come up here with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Note that this isn't being taken out of the world to go and live in heaven forever. It's Jesus coming down to us from heaven. We're caught up along with the resurrected to join Jesus in his triumphal procession as he comes to reign over the new heavens and the new earth. Finally, notice the outcome of the testimony of these witnesses in verse 13. This great earthquake destroys a tenth of the city, which is 7,000 people. That means that nine-tenths remain. And what do this nine-tenths do? They're terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Does that sound like repentance? They see the majesty and the glory of God in the preaching of the gospel and with a holy fear, they worship him. So, one-tenth are lost nine-tenths believe and are saved. That which the judgments of the trumpets one to five were insufficient to accomplish, the 
judgments in creation, the gospel has accomplished. It's not a small minority who are saved, it's a great majority. That This is the triumphant goal of the gospel that we're sent to proclaim. We have to keep that in our vision as we answer the the call to go and make disciples of all nations. There won't be a small huddle of us in the new creation while the majority of humanity are in hell. We will be the uncountable multitude that fills the earth. Jesus has been building his church for 2,000 years, adding daily to the number those who are being saved. So the church here in our little corner of the world might seem small and defeated, but remember, we are one with all of the saints who have gone before us, both Old Testament and New Testament, and with all of the saints that are all around the world as we speak, worshipping on this day. Only God knows the number, only he knows exactly who they are, but knowing that he knows should give us great confidence in giving our time and our energy and our resources as we work together as the body of Christ to see this glorious gospel go out. Let's pray.